Welcome to the regular podcast from Editorial Intelligence, the media analysis and networking business. You can see all our broadcast interviews on our EITV channel on YouTube and editorialintelligence.com. So, uh, hi, I'm uh, Russell Dubner. I head the office here for Edelman, New York, and just wanted to first uh, welcome you all and uh, thank you for joining us uh, tonight. This is the, uh, the first event of names, not numbers, outside of Wales, I believe. So uh, thank you all for, uh, for making time to join us. And uh, thanks also to the Financial Times for partnering with us for this event. And uh, we're very pleased to be playing your host this evening. And I think you have, as I think by your uh, being here this evening, shows quite an esteemed panel here uh, grappling with... Uh, uh, a, a peculiar issue of, of how do you really express yourself in this age that we find ourselves in and what does individuality really look like today. So I'm going to pass it over to Julia to say a little words of introduction. Well, I'm Julia Hobsbawm of Editorial Intelligence from London, although I have a, a bit of an Edelman hat that I'm very proud to wear and I'm enormously grateful to the Edelman team here and also to Robert Phillips from London who was the first person to say, yes, it's a good idea to hold a symposium about what the meaning of life is in the middle of a busy schedule, putting people in politics and business and media together to discuss it. And the second person who thought it was a good idea is sitting next to Robert, and that's Emma Gilpin-Jacobs of the Financial Times. And everything we do, we're a, we're a networking business in London, we're a connections business, we're interested in ideas. And we can only do that with the support of partners and friends. Some of my friends, a lot of my friends are on the panel and they may not want to be my friends again as I make them do enjoyable but arduous things like speak on panels. And you will notice that one of my friends is not Gillian Tett. He is a man and he's Peter York and he's come all the way from London with me and he's literally seat warming for Gillian Tett who is on her way in a cab from the Financial Times. So I'm going to introduce Gillian Tett in absentia, introduce Peter, and then we'll have a little baton passing moment when she arrives. Gillian, when she arrives, and she will chair, <laughs> is the uh, managing editor, US, of the Financial Times. She's also star of Silver Screen because we saw her last night in Inside Job about the financial crisis. And she's one of the most esteemed financial journalists of her generation. She's also an anthropologist, so she's a very fitting person as a pluralist, to be chairing this panel. No less fitting a person is Peter York. He's Peter Wallace when he's getting upgraded on BA instead of me, but he's Peter York as his nom de plume. And he is also a bit of a cultural anthropologist. And so, Peter, you are going to introduce everybody else and pretend to be Gillian. I must say before I hand over, you're being recorded, you're being podcast. If you ever thought there was such a thing anymore as off the record, you were wrong. So don't speak up unless you would like to be immortalized. Thank you very much. Here's Peter. Well, how gorgeous you all look, striving individualists. And I'm just keeping the seat warm for Gillian, who is a registered global superstar for us. It's really marvelous. And as you came in, I tried to ask you what the secret of the universe was. And that's what we'll do all this evening. We'll be asking the question of how you maintain your individuality in the face of a torrent of mass culture. My own answer is to cut my toenails, because that gives you a lovely moment 
you know, little spiritual moment. <laughs> but I don't know about the rest of you. Perhaps American people don't cut their toenails. <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, something, a machine does it. Somebody comes in. <laughs> Anyways, <laughs> my first duty, and I may stumble because the biographies of our marvellous speakers here are so extraordinary. It makes it so extraordinary, so bizarre, so overqualified, <laughs> and with masses of achievement and education to their names. Which I mean, there's, in England, there's a, there's a TV uh, comedy show where there's a man who get, gets into conversations in bars and in which it becomes absolutely clear that he is out of his depth. Do you know what he does? It's a wonderful little English thing. What he does is said, I'll get my coat. And that's how I'm feeling right now, but I'm going to describe as best I can the absolutely mind-bending wonderfulness of the people you're going to hear from tonight. And this is in no particular order. It's the order that Julia told me to do it. And I, I was here originally to carry her bag. Well, that no particular order? One, Michael Wolfe. And Michael Wolfe, yeah. Do you know how they do, how they do that, that when they're showing in an auction room? You've got so many lovely English auction rooms. Over here, sir. Over here is Michael Wolfe. And Michael Wolfe is all sorts of wonderful things. He's an award-winning journalist. He's not just a journalist, he's an award-winning journalist. And he's an entrepreneur, newly recently appointed as the editorial director of the Adweek Group, which is an Adland and related marketing speak, marketing speak world. Also a contributing editor of Vanity Fair. The moment you can say that in any company, to the back of the you're made, aren't you? And the founder of News Aggregator Newser. Other things, quick, quick, quick. Uh, he, his books, and there are many, include a biography of Rupert Murdoch, the man who owns the news. And he's been involved with many startups including, in 1993, now this is delicious, his first internet company. How good is that? Here is Howard Pulchin, who is managing director of brand stewardship in this very building. And he works, and this is what it says, he strives with colleagues and clients to enhance the reputation of relevance and resonance corporate and consumer facing brands. I sort of know about what that job's about because Inasmuch as I ever had a job, it was to be a market researcher, and I know it comes from those roots, but it's much grander than that. Then, here, Rob Kaufelt, owner of Murray's Cheese. I've been to Murray's Cheese. I dare say you, uh, you're all on, you'll all be on the Murray's Cheese hotline. Uh, joined the family supermarket business, New Jersey, became president, wore a suit on your own admission, he wore a suit and a tie every day with his tie pulled up right there. He made a break for order and bought New York's oldest cheese shop, Murray's, in Greenwich Village, and he's made a roaring, raging success of it. And so much so that it is now going to be reproduced in miniature around the country. Is that true? True. Yes. Chris Anderson, curator of TED. It says curator, and you said that was an allowable it's an allowable remark to me. Yes. Yeah. And uh, born in a remote village in Pakistan, early years in India, Oxford, degree of philosophy, journalist, years on newspapers, and then the sort of geek moment 
I don't remember whether the geek moment happened and you did geeky stuff. Uh, the, the UK's early computer magazines, a startup, future publishing, media with passion, cross to America, and then eventually the TED conference in 2001. Simon Sharma is professor at Columbia University and contributing editor at the FT. And when I first saw him, I did explain him. He didn't see me in Primrose Hill, outside the engineer in Primrose Hill. And I thought, that is Ian McKellen's younger brother. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know, this terrible thing. <laughs> Professor of art history and history at Columbia, writer and presenter of every, every history documentary I've seen except for the other stuff. Not only that, taught at Cambridge, Oxford and Harvard before going to Columbia. Well, there's something, there is something about that sort of you know, story, isn't it? 14 books translated into <laughs> 16 languages. Art criticism for the New Yorker won the National Magazine Award in 1996. Give a round for Peter York. The, uh, yeah. 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 Well, as I say, I don't think I could have done a better job myself at all. Um, apart from anything else, my current role, I'm sort of paid to try and be moderately nice to people. And I think Peter's allowed to be much more frank and outspoken, so thank you. You did a wonderful job. Um, right, well, thank you all very much indeed for coming along tonight. And apologies for being late. I'm a journalist. We tend to operate to tight deadlines, but this was a bit too tight. Um, we have an absolutely fascinating topic to discuss this evening. And it's something that's very dear to my heart, because as some of you may know, although I've been covering finance and economics for the last few years, I actually have a PhD in social anthropology, um, which I had before I actually became a journalist. And when I went around Wall Street and the City of London a few years ago and told bankers that I had a PhD studying Tajik mountain tribesmen <laughs> and I was going to cover CDOs, they sort of look at me and say, famously one said, gosh, isn't that all rather hippie? Back in, the days when, <laughs> back in the days when people on Wall Street thought it wasn't good to be heavy. But if there's one thing we've learned in the last three years in the credit crisis, it's that social organisations, cultural systems, cognitive maps really matter. I mean, the roots of the word credit come from the Latin credere, meaning to believe, which is fundamentally a social co construct. So I think the fact we're sitting here talking about names, not numbers, is incredibly in tune with the mood of the times. The fact that actually social organisations, individuals, individual stories, personalities and systems really matter. So, to start off the debate this evening, we have Howard first. Okay, I so I guess I'm first here. So, um, so in thinking about this, and the question that was posed to all of us was to think about um, the role the individual plays today in individual expression and how is individuality expressed in today's world. And so I couldn't help thinking about that old, um, you know, um, posit a philosophical question about if a tree falls in a forest and there's no one around to hear it, does it make a sound? And so in thinking about that, I started thinking about the posit a little bit differently. Um, since there is a seemingly opposite could be true today in terms of what's going on out there. We're living in a time where there is an abundance of ways, forums, channel, medium, in which um, individuals can express their individual natures and their opinions and their views. We're also living in a time when we are simply bombarded 
we are bombarded every minute of the day um, with you know, individual forms of expression from the seemingly mindless, and for all of you who are on Facebook, you know what I mean, to some really interesting, significant thoughts out there. So we're bombarded with lots of stuff out there. Um, so philosophically, my question in thinking about the tree analogy is if a person expresses his or her individuality and there is no one reacting, no one's commenting or collaborating, has their individuality been expressed? So a question I want to kind of really pose to all of us tonight is does individual expression need to resonate and cause a response to actually be expression? So there are multiple ways for individuals to express themselves. Um, but the, like the tree in the forest falling, if no one joins you in your response, if no one collaborates, comments, tweets, likes, um, reacts, acts, has anyone really expressed that individuality? So if I think about a couple of examples. So one of, the, one of um, the brands we work on here is Pepsi, and we work on the Pepsi Refresh project. So I think many of you are aware of Pepsi Refresh project, where each month they grant um, grants to people who have ideas. The whole idea was it's one person plus one idea can refresh the world. But it's that one person's idea, but it has to be voted on by a ton of people to get the grant. So again, it's one person's individual expression, but he is or she is joined by many others. Uh, another example, I think we've all heard about this in the US. Um, there was a move earlier this year to get Betty White to be the host of Saturday Night Live. Um, it was started by one individual. He expressed his desire to have Betty White um, host Saturday Night Live. Lauren Michaels, in his 30 plus years of um, producing the show, has always relied on his own judgment. But this one individual started a move, a drive. And he had thousands of people liking Betty White to host Saturday Night Live. I'm seeing some friends who are on Facebook who I know join that movement. So again, it was one individual, but it was thousands that got Lauren Michaels to do something that he had never agreed to do before. Um, and not to get into politics, although I think that could be a fun discussion, especially here in America, what's going on right now. Um, there um, are a lot of lone wolves sometimes out there with seemingly radical views. Um, and I'm not going to name them because uh, that would be unfair. Um, but I think a lot of these folks now are probably better able to express themselves because they're under a banner, a collective banner of the Tea Party movement. So basically, rather than being seen as individual fringe candidates, we're seeing these individual forms of expression take a greater credence because it's no longer just talking about, let's say, Christine O'Donnell alone. It's talking about Christine O'Donnell and the Republican gubernatorial candidate in New York and Joe Miller from Alaska. So for me, in thinking about some of these examples and thinking about the questions I posed in the beginning, individuality is really expressed as part of a groups who coalesce around expression. Individuality, to me, is expressed by a sense of belonging or joining <clears throat> or affiliating. You know, one individual can start an expression, but he or she needs others to really finish it and to really make it come to life. So as I was talking to one of my colleagues about this, and before I pass the uh, baton to my, uh, one of my fellow panelists, um, you know, I, I thought of a hackneyed proverb that we've all heard. You know, the more things change, the more they stay the same. So in thinking about my point of view, has it really changed? Has anything really changed besides the way that we can express ourselves? Um, and I went back and started thinking about there wasn't one beatnik in the 50s. There were a lot of beatniks. There wasn't one hippie in the 60s. There was a ton of them. 
Um, there wasn't one goth guy or girl or woman in the 80s. I couldn't think of anything for the 70s. Um, there wasn't one goth in the 80s. There was a lot of them. So people, their individuality and all of them were considered individuals. Oh, th that hippie or those hippies are expressing their individuality. But their individuality was really expressed as being part of a group. So what's changed today with individual expression, in my view, is the speed and scale in which it can occur. Um, you know, what once took a seemingly long time, and so again, for us who probably weren't old enough to think about the beatniks or even alive or think about the hippies, it probably took a number of years to happen. But today, that what seemingly took a long time to be expressed and resonate can happen almost instantly and it can happen cross borders in a flash. So I think that's a difference, but ultimately I think some of the forms of expression really needing to take hold in groups and communities and tribes has long been a truth. Thank you, Howard. That was very thought-provoking. Um, right, the order in which we're going to talk is Howard, and then Michael, Rob Kofelt, um, Chris Anderson, and then Simon Sharma. I've now got my official crib sheet. So um, over to Michael. I don't think I agree with any of that. <laughs> Um, first, it, it, it's, um, it's really, really takes some talent at this point to be a, um, uh, a tree that nobody hears. Um, n not to get commented upon, not to have people um, join in what you're saying, uh, not to um, uh, provoke everyone else to respond is um, actually that, that takes talent. Um, we, we're, we're in a moment and something has happened and, it's, and it's, this has happened recently. I mean, we're talking, um, you know, at best a couple of years and, and, um, and it may be shorter than that, um, um, in which we have uh, new, new forms of, of, uh, of technology have now enabled a, a, a revolution in um, in communications and expression. Um, everything is in the process of changing. Um, um, I, you know, and, and I think that it changes, it changes not only what's expressed, but it changes the, the, the people who are expressing it. Um, we don't even know what's, what, what the metamorphosis that we're now going through. Um, the fact that everyone is an expressor, everyone is a publisher, um, everyone um, is is um, um, everyone gets to be heard, and then they really get to be heard. Um, um, I, I don't think you know. Um, if, if I could invent something now, it would be how to keep people silent. Um, um, <laughs> Um, so, I, in a way, I not only uh, uh, disagree with my esteemed uh, panelists, I disagree with the whole construct of this panel. Um, um, uh, it, it may be that there are too many names now. Um, it may be that there are too many voices. Um, it may be that, um, let me put it this way, it is, we we we've we've gone from a fundamental we've 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 shifted and and the shift has gone from institutions which which held power to um, individuals or or you might say consumers 
holding power now. Institutions are 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 completely um, um, on their their uppers. Um, all power has passed to the consumer, and especially the information consumer. Um, and 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 it's a a, a situation which, which no one in the, in the sort of the, the older world, the institutional world, knows how to deal with. Um, and one of the fundamental things that is now um, um, being undermined or that's up for, for grabs is the traditional ways we, we express things. Um, um, the, the whole the whole as, as essentially structure of expression is now is now under under assault. Um, the very people who once were charged with expressing and expressing on behalf of everyone um, um, are are now being um, at at best marginalized, and that's you know from from the point of view. And I'm in an interesting position here because I am that person. I'm a writer. I've made my career um, going blah 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 um, for endless millions upon millions of, of of words. And I've also been on the on the other side of that of that divide. And I'm and I'm also the guy say saying saying, thank God the New York Times is going to come to an end. We've brought it to its knees. Um, and um, so it's, it's, it's curious. And in fact, if somebody else had, had started this in a different way, I think I, I probably would have gone in a different, I, I, would, have, I would have taken the, the reverse position. Um, um, <laughs> because the truth is that I, I don't know, we're, we, we, we are in the face of, we are straddling two worlds right now. Um, and the one world which 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 got us here, in which um, um, in which the New York Times was uh, made us who we are, um, and um, um, and the singular and and dominant voices, whether they were network voices or um, or um, the voices of of um, great novelists or the New Yorker. Anyone ever even read the New Yorker? You probably have that app thing now. It's uh, um, um, have now come come to the point. That's my world. Um, and um, uh, but then suddenly, um, um, just because, like everyone else, it suddenly seemed more interesting. I went over to the to the other world, and it is a world which, and I and I. I I, I absolutely, I absolutely believe this, and I think it would be foolish for anyone to believe anything differently. Uh, that world is going to uh, absolutely transform the world that we we grew up in. Um, so I think that this that that the fundamental question about 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 expression and expressiveness is um, vastly more complicated than um, uh, than it. It might seem to be outlined here, and um, um, but I also think it is the fundamental question of 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 our, our time, um, and it finally comes down to how do we say something that's uh, meaningful? And I have no idea. 
<laughs> well, thank you, Michael. I'm delighted you disagree with Howard because we have the beginning of a proper debate. I must say I disagree with some of the things that you've said, so I will come back to that later on. But I can see Simon scribbling frantically and nodding part of the time. So, um, but we're going to go now to Rob and then after that Chris and then Simon to um, comment at the end. Well, when Julia asked me to be on this panel, I did have to chuckle. And then when I saw that you know, Simon Sharma was on the panel, I, I had to chuckle in, in, in fear. Uh, I will say that he has beautiful handwriting. Uh, <laughs> and uh, in the eye test. And <laughs> and he underlined the words conformity as well, so yep. <laughs> secrets. And I can barely read my own notes. Um, Clearly, uh, just from some of the people I see in front of me here, uh, um, Liesl Schillinger, who's at times Book Review's greatest book reviewer, Betty Fossil, the dean of food writers, and Vogue, pinup girl, I might add, and Michael Dorff, our great New York City empresario over there, and founder of uh, uh, New York City's only winery. Do I see Craig? Unger, great investigative journalist and, uh, and uh, Vanity Fair editor and, uh, and now entrepreneur in the age of the internet and IAPS. Clearly anybody in this room is probably qualified to be up here and certainly more so than I. So what I want to speak about is, um, you know, cheese and individuality if I might. <laughs> um, early in the 70s when I was a graduate bachelor's degree from Cornell University in government um, uh, and a dropout from law school and architecture school um, graduate studies. Uh, I entered the family grocery business in New Jersey, as you heard. Um, and though my folks wanted me to have the uh, fine education that I got um, and that they never had, it was... Uh, it wasn't long before I realized that my father and my grandfather um, had little use uh, for a too smart for his own good college boy uh, with a lot of opinions he was only too happy uh, to express. So after 10 uh, painful or induced paying years, I might add, I became president but finally realized that, uh, that uh, McLuhan was right. The medium was a message and, uh, and the endless meetings with grocers um, the mafiosa union guys, the windowless office, the suit and the tie, um, and sitting at a desk in front of a com computer screen was not for me, so I left. And um, there was, you know, bad blood in the family uh, after that. When I bought uh, Murray's, which is New York's oldest cheese shop, a little while later, it was a whole entirely different um, Smoke. It was uh, it was cheese and jeans and t-shirts, and it was looking out the window at pretty girls. It was it was time in the walk-in cooler and lugging around heavy wheels of cheese, and uh, and so I felt like I'd been liberated and, and let out of uh, let out of jail. Um, over the next dozen years or so, my father and I gradually repaired our relationship. And, uh, and uh, although my dad always said um, uh, the same thing uh, when I bought the cheese, which was that I was out of my effing mind and nobody ate cheese anyway. There was too much cholesterol. 
Then one day in 2004, the New Yorker magazine, which nobody reads anymore, <laughs> except me. And me. <laughs> and me. Okay, you're, you're Along with the New York Times, which we're all about to bury, <laughs> um, uh, I ran a profile about me. And, and, and so um, my, my dad retired then in Boca Raton, um, did what you would expect, and went around and showed it to all his neighbors. So that validated my, my, my career change. Um, and then a few years later, Kroger Supermarkets, which is our nation's largest chain, they do $77 billion and, and have 2,700 stores. They came calling and, and asked if we would consider putting cheese shops within the shops of their, their larger volume stores. And we said, no, of course. Uh, it seemed like a bad idea. Life was good, more or less. Uh, but they persisted, and, 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 and I thought, well, I know how to do this. Um, last week, we opened our 14th. Murray's in a Kroger in Atlanta, Georgia, out of a 50-store deal that we made. Uh, and the business model can't be beat. It's their capital, their labor, their inventory, and we get a percentage of sales. Uh, but the point is that my dad had just turned 90 the week before. So, uh, so I asked him to join me in a store tour down there in Atlanta. Uh, we had three stores open for the big grand opening party, and he was the head of the show. Um, and then he told me later it was the high point of his life at 90. Uh, so I was beginning to put this all in perspective in terms of you know, what Julius asked me to do here. And, and there is one last thing. Um, several years ago, um, desperate to, um, to escape a uh, failing marriage, I was traveling the known cheese world. I spent a lot of time traveling to places that have cheese. And, uh, and uh, in Ireland, at a gig in Ireland, a food gig in Ireland, I met a, a girl who was a speaker there. And, um, and she was from America, but living in England at the time. And uh, soon thereafter, she moved to uh, New York to manage the New York City Green Markets and, uh, as the executive director. And, uh, and we began a torrid affair. Um, but she wanted kids, and I was getting older, and I wasn't a good bit anyway. Uh, but I wanted them too. So we had three children. Uh, and they're all under four. <laughs> I was 63 last week. Um, so, um, and then we got married. Perhaps you saw it in the Times uh, a few weeks ago. The one that no one reads. Um, so what's the point of all this? Um, Friends were always telling me not to do the things that I really wanted to do. And, and so I, I guess I would say that, you know, it's just really nothing more than doing your own thing. Uh, and if they tell you that, they're, uh, that you're crazy, then, you know, don't listen and get, get new friends. <laughs> Thank you, Rob. Well, certainly worked for you and for the cheese. Um, Chris, find yeah, Thank that. you. Um, I'm going to stand, if I may. I hope that's not rude. It's, um, I would like to be able to see you. Um, it's an important thing, seeing. It's actually what I want to talk about. This is a paradox, this individuality question. On the one hand, you know, we're in an age where we're 
connected like never before. And you could make the case that talking about individuality now is absurd. It's not the story that matters. The story that matters is us as the connected whole, you know, the human family, the superorganism. Um, but on the other hand, I think you can make the case that as individuals, we can see each other. Sorry about the spooky echo. We can see each other in a way that we've never been able to see each other before. And this is a huge deal. What is the magic that allows this? Well, you know, we all think a lot about the internet. It's been around a long time. And certainly the web has brought people together uh, in a new way. But for the first years of the web, it only really brought particular groups of people together, like really together, in a way that they could see each other. It brought writers together, because um, the early internet was all about words. It brought photographers together. Those files could be shared easily online. Musicians, programmers. You had the whole open source movement and people connecting in ways that they never had. But something big has happened in the last few years. And it's, it's, I think it's underreported, it, its significance. That something is the rise of online video. Now, it's how, you know, YouTube seems so trivial and you know, we don't really think of this as a big deal. It's a big deal because what it is allowing is everyone in the world, no matter what their talent or ability or individual passion, to share it with everyone else in the world because you can buy you know, a $100 video camera, shoot it, upload it, and if it's special, there's a real chance that tens, hundreds, maybe even a sports stadium full of people will watch it. Now, this is incredible. This is an incredible thing. And if you dig under the surface of what's happening online, you'll see that it's changing behavior in all, in all kinds of really incredible ways. There's thousands of niche communities that, emer that are emerging that are, that are doing things that they've never done before. I, I first noticed this in the world of dance from this group, the LXD, that came to TED. And it was made up of kids recruited off the internet. Why the internet? Because they had been looking at each other, you know, dancing online, doing this, these cool things, and, and deciding, first of all, I could do that. And then, ooh, if I did that, I might be watched by thousands of people. There's a real social recognition kick that there's never been before. And so, you know, teenage kids were spending hours of time sweating, you know, going through the discipline of what it took to be great in their world and coming up with these amazing new moves and innovations. So there's innovation there. Thousands of other niches from all the physical things you could think of, like <laughs> skateboarding and you know, all the different kind of musicianship and so forth, um, through to more you know, interesting things, if you like. Um, you know, scientists starting to share experiments online. You could write a paper, and no one could really understand what you did, or they couldn't replicate it. But you show them an experiment, suddenly they, they can understand. And from Ted's point of view, um, what was so interesting was that the, the sharing of an idea could reach a whole new level of scale. You know, traditionally, ideas have been spread through print. Um, Gutenberg changed the world. That's how the scientific revolution happened. It, it, you know, we, we all know that story. Um, the story we perhaps don't know is that print is a really crude technology. So much of human communication, um, what we're doing now, couldn't be done in print. We, we spent millions of years evolving all these techniques to really decode 
a live speaker. You know, to, to, to understand whether they're for real or, or lying or bullshitting or, and, and, you know, to sense their vulnerability, their emotion, to, to pick up from their emphasis which parts of their words actually matter. So, you know, we, we know these cliches about 90% of communication is body language. You know, it's, it's true and print excludes that. And somehow that has never been thought of as that big a deal. But you could argue that the arrival of online video has, will do for this ancient art of person-to-person -person communication what print, what Gutenberg did for the printed word. Um, so this is a big deal, potentially. This means that in this super-connected age, anyone, whether you're, you know, whatever your talent is, and even if your talent is, you know, sharing something that you're passionate and wanting to persuade other people, you can do that now in a way that you could never do it before. And we've had the incredible thrill at TED of seeing unexpected people become kind of a form of global rock star. You know, the Swedish professor of public health who by showing these whizzy graphics online has suddenly changed the view of, of literally millions of people of how they think of the world. Or I think of a, you know, a scientist like Bonnie Bassler who spends the time you know, trying to understand bacteria and how they communicate, standing up and, 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 and sharing how incredibly interesting these bugs are. You know, never in past history could that idea have gone anywhere. But because it can be captured on film now, and you can see her and her geeky scientific passion on stage, you know, millions of people get interested in, in bugs. Um, this is potentially unbelievably exciting because it has the, it has the possibility of kick-starting you know, a cycle, a cycle of learning where person A sees someone on the far side of the world, sees what, what they are and what they can do and what they're passionate about, is inspired by that, and, and responds. And, and so I, I think you can make the case that if we do it right, um, we're on the verge of creating a, a, a fantastic learning cycle, perhaps the greatest learning cycle in human history. And it's, and it's based on individuality and not individuality. It's based on individuals, but connecting together as a as a superorganism in a very special way. Um, it's not all about being the rock star. You know, I, th I think Michael um, loves being the contrarian and, and made the case that it's, it, it takes a special talent, you know, not to be noticed now. That's actually not true because the, med the median number, I think this is the right stat, the median number of views of, for example, a typical blog post I mean, it's not, you know, five million like on, you know, Huffington Post or, you know, 5,000 as in some, someone who's followed a lot. The median number of views of a typical blog post is zero. Um, more than half of what's written never gets seen by anyone. And it's kind of a tragedy because what, a lot of what's out there actually really probably is very good. A lot of the videos on YouTube that are lost and never seen by anyone probably are very good. What, so one of the talents that's needed is not being an individual, you know, sort of talent in front of the camera or the writer or whatever. It's, it's the trend spotter. It's, it's finding the, the talent that's out there and trying to bring it out to the bigger crowd. So it's, think of an ecosystem where all these different roles are possible. Yes, the innovator, the individualist, the artist, the star, um, but also the, the trend spotter, the cheerleader, um, the skeptic, the contrarian, these, these roles are all important because they keep the system clean. 
it's, it's an incredibly, incredibly exciting time. We can be individuals like never before, but we're connected like never before. Thank you. Well, over to Simon for the last word on, before we open it up to debate. That's the kind of word I always like, Julian. It turns out never to be true. Conformity. Um, I, I think Chris is profoundly confused um, between visibility and significance. There's nothing intrinsically, um, there should be nothing intrinsically uh, confirming significance about visibility. It's entirely whether what you make visible is true or important. We can set up through the web communities of imitation, which sounded to me what the sort of thing that makes you excited. Um, but what actually counts is actually whether the template of what's being imitated has anything worthwhile that actually shifts the paradigms of culture or not. We can create imitative communities of drivel, and mostly we often do. The web has extraordinary educational potential to it. But I think my wife, who's a scientist, would have been absolutely speak, you know, um, a certain amount of um, anxiety about, you know, putting words into her mouth, who's a research scientist, would have been absolutely horrified to hear you say that simply because you actually make an experiment visible, it's going to have a kind of profound impact. You don't know if one performance of an experiment is actually going to tell you anything truthful about the experiment unless you happen to also have the control you yes. know that the ha That's and you the have an account of the protocols it is printed or indeed visible protocols which will make that science true and important or entertaining baloney the word today is of course julia julian of course a problem for me Actually, because I come from, I taught at a university which defined modern history as beginning with the Emperor Diocletian. So forgive the professorial moment. I promise not to give you a lecture, visible or not. But the notion of, in, but it, it is significant now. It is significant. We are indeed at a crossroads, although not, I think, I would not share Chris's definition of what the crossroads actually is. I'm rather closer. I said to Michael, we've got Curmudgeon Corner here, actually. I'm a bit closer <laughs> to the concerns that Michael raised. Look, um, individuality, for a start, is not the same thing as individualism. At least I certainly hope it isn't. And it's mutated into the monster of Ayn Randish individualism. Individuality has a quite short history for those of us who began the modern age with the Emperor Diocletian. It begins in the 18th century with, you know, the big boys of of self-interrogation, Rousseau, Goethe, and Wordsworth, and three particular gigantic, titanic mountains of self-interrogation. The Bildungsroman of the sorrows of young Werther, the, the hideously mawkish sentimental confessions, possibly the Nouvelle Eloise, and certainly with the masterpiece that makes the case for individual self-seeking that's grown into the nightmare banality if I must find myself and grow. How many of you, when you saw Kramer versus Kramer, wanted to attack the movie screen when Meryl Streep abandons her child in the name of wanting to find yourself, herself? You wanted to scream at the cinema, where the hell did you lose yourself in the first place? But those big three do, for the moment, create, at that particular time, at the end of the 18th century, uh, the notion that really societies are actually, um, or rather, the, the, the realization of what it is to be inside a human skin is where you can sort of shed 
the institutional constraints which have been imposed on you, like an old slough it off, like an old snakeskin. And something in there, something in there is the real you. And the notion of the sovereignty of you has its moment. It has extraordinarily noble moments in the work, let's say, of, of, uh, of, of, of Thoreau and sort of comically megalomaniac moments like Walt Whitman, however, you know, seeing the body electric, me, 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 <laughs> in Whitman. And gets to a point of kind of sublime illumination and bathos with our old friend Nietzsche um, at the end of the night. It's broken the notion that there is a you over which you can discover the sort of lineaments of the sovereignty of the powerfully irreducible you is broken by Freud and Kafka. And what's happened to it? Yes, I'm getting to the real today now. It's mutated into many kinds of truly ghastly monsters, monsters that actually threaten the serious investigation of what it is still to be a human being, and therefore what it is to make community. I'd much rather we restored, as our half-broken president tried to, the word community in place of the word network. It may be something to discuss about what the difference in those notions are. But what has mutated into two things. One, the, the neo-Hobbesian version of laissez-faire individualism, which anything which actually puts us in touch with each other, causes us, persuades us to make sacrifices for the purpose of the common good, is to be abhorred as a kind of perversion of a particularly American passion to realize, optimize our own individual or possibly even family self-interests. And the other monster that's <coughs> from which <coughs> the cult of individuality has mutated is a kind of faux individuality, which is a sort of, it is a kind of democracy of drivel. It is the kind of right to bloviate. Everybody should indeed have the right to bloviate. The issue is, do we encourage our children to make dis distinctions and hierarchies between truth and falsehood, between the significant and the trivial, as these enormous kind of meteor showers of data come at them. I taught, tried to teach a class on the art of the essay at Columbia in the writing program last term, and it, everything from Lester Bangs back to Hazlitt and George Orwell. But what I got mostly from Me? the students, yeah, of course, Michael, you're a star. Um, but mostly what I got from them actually was, again, their, their right to bloviate, the notion that actually anything that happened to them, Rousseau would have loved this, but anything that happened to them was intrinsically significant and could create a kind of bonding of like-minded bloviators who had equally things to say about everything that happened to them in the day. And the danger now is actually that we have two kinds of monster fake individualities negotiating with each other. The brutality of neo-Hobbesian laissez-faire, me, me, mine, and on the other hand, a kind of rather mawkish, corrupt, mutated version of the sentimental right of self-expression. So what I would, would actually like is to, for someone in our own culture to be Arthur O but a Thoreau who doesn't have to retreat to Walden Pond, but speaks for the sovereignty of community instead. Wow. <laughs> well done, you.
can I can I disagree well, I with say. that? <laughs> <laughs> would you like to Would you like to agree with anything that anyone else has said? <laughs> Perhaps, but I would like to. I actually agree with, with 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 Simon, but I think it's important to point out that what Simon said is completely irrelevant. Um, um, and you have to say, um, I'm all, all uh, nice and noble, but but uh, the world is as it is. We are technological creatures, um, and as essentially nothing else matters once the technology is invented. Um, a world before automobiles was, um, I'm sure many of us could, could ar argue, a, a, a far more peaceful place. Um, but uh, automobiles come, come along, and the world is transformed. And so we are at a point in time where a certain kind of technology has come along, whether it's called network technology or social networks or whatever. Um, a, a, a technology is in place which is now changing everything. Um, so the world you describe, a, a fine world, is a lost world. Um, and we can mourn it, um, but I think we are, we are better served by describing and understanding the world that we are now um, necessarily in. Well, I, I think, think that's, that's a think, yeah. Orwellian council of despair. You know, <laughs> I don't agree at all. I'm not a Luddite, Michael. I'm not a Luddite. I think it's important to plant the flag, actually, of the significance of truth and a hierarchy of significance out there in the web. I'm not, I'm not I, calling I, for everybody I, 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 to I, I you see know, resume I their think, I think you're, you're misunderstanding the, the how fundamentally we are technological creatures and how much technology changes but us, so was the 19th transforms us. 19th century was a technological society. And it transformed, in, and it transformed us. Yeah, but and it didn't it make us dive stamp, you know, replicas of each other, receiving indiscriminate receiving units of whatever came our way. On the contrary. Well, I never would have been James Joyce. Uh, different technologies do different things, but the, my point is whatever, they are determinative. Chris, do you want to? You're a doctor. Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, there's, there's truth okay. in, in, in. I mean, leaving aside the cheese, I think we have a <laughs> anti or someone who believes in technology changing things. You don't believe technology changing things. Absolutely not. That's, that, okay, that's a yes, caricature yeah, that of my yes. view. Oh, that's, okay. I will not have those words no. put in my mouth, Julian. I right. won't. I'm not a large, I'm not against technology. Um, what do you mean? But you're, you're, against, you're against people um, <laughs> engaging in mutual bloviation, and, and, that, and that's, that's good. I agree with that. Um, but I think Michael's point is true that the world is as it is. So can we, can we say anything constructive here? If I agree that it's a terrible danger on the web, that there are loads of inward-looking communities that are yeah. um, singing to each other in a familiar, comfortable language, persuading each other that they hold the truth, that they're the center of the world, uh, they're in a bubble. And, and the web is capable of creating this sort of sense of a bubble, and it's, and it's, and it's dangerous. But that's actually the opposite of what, what I'm trying to argue. I'm trying to argue that, that although there's no guarantee that visibility gets you anything of value, <coughs> because 99 plus percent of what people put out on the web is rubbish. It's useless. Um, but the point is, you know, people actually made a similar complaint about you know, when, when print first came along, I mean, the huge percentage of books that are published were rubbish. 
but there were books in there that changed the world. The question is, are there people out there online doing, doing stuff that is remarkable? And if there is, shouldn't we be trying to find ways to celebrate them, to identify them, and to give them a wider audience? I mean, it's, it's all, oh, to, be fought, it's all to be fought for. It's, it's all to be fought for. That's my point. Chris, it could Chris go either is, way. is actually making not really a point about, about content, which he thinks he is, but he's making a point about distribution. And, um, um, and distribution really means that it doesn't really matter what the content is. The content will be good. The content will be bad. But the, the transformative effect is that it's so much easier and so much cheaper to get it to vastly more people. But then surely the onus then comes on whether people who receive it have the educational tools, the skills oh, to actually that's understand baloney. and read it. I can't believe and, you said that. Well, I think that, you know, you can argue that yes, everyone can have access to the internet, but not everyone can make sense of what they're actually seeing. Well, and you do how have can, an issue and on, on what basis do you know this because you make sense of things? And, no, and are there are many things I don't make sense of. And that here? No, no, not at all. No, there are the many things that I don't make sense of. And what concerns me is that you do have, it's not so much a question of have and have nots, it's have the educational training or do not have the educational training to understand what's going oh, so on and how the world works. people have to have the education because no, you what, went to no, college. No, what worries you're, me is you're, actually... You no. had a, you're, you, you no, can no, go no, over no, your degrees worries, again? No, what, what worries me is the fact you actually have a, t a technological elite who have the ability to shape events because they do understand stuff that other people don't. And the internet creates the illusion of equal access, but not the reality because of that's educational changing. gaps. That's changing. Well, fast. I hope, you, I hope yeah. you're right, and that's one of the reasons why... But, but I think Do you want to comment yeah, on how Well, there's a lot to comment on. Um, but <laughs> let me just uh, comment on Michael's last um, critique of Chris in terms of content versus distribution. And I do believe what Chris was talking about was content. And I think when we talk about distribution, we're talking about distribution as if we are media people or marketers, uh, people who are in the information business. And I think that what, you know, we have to also think to ourselves and use the word consumers before, and I abhor that word because I don't think of myself today as a consumer. I think of myself as a person, a guy, in many different ways. And I think when we look at people as consumers, then you can distribute information to them. But when you basically bring people together with content, again, we can say there is, I agree with the point of there's a lot of rubbish out there. There's a lot of, to Chris's point, there's a lot of one focused way of people are looking at things. They're going to go to websites or TV networks, which basically share their views. But I think with content out there, the great thing about individual expression is that we're getting people to respond, to act, to think about, to share different things that they glean from that content. And that's a beautiful thing. But I think it's a matter of distribution as a very media-centric perspective. I think in terms of what people do with words that are expressed, with ideas, you know, scientific experiments, that's kind of the discussion we should be having tonight and how people are being enriched, but also how people may be misguided. Well, you also have the risk of reinforcing silos, but yeah. yeah. Oh, oh, that was that a request, request to speak, absolutely. Well, I agree with everything Simon said, except for the parts that were bad for me. Um, I don't spend very much time on panels like this. It's why I say polite and put your hand up. That's right. But I do spend an awful lot of time with, you know, real people, people that didn't go to college, people that don't have much money but want to buy some good food. Uh, people, and the point of the, uh, the point I was really making about the, uh, 
the Kroger thing was not, you know, isn't that great that it turned into a good business for me? That wasn't the point of that. The point of that was the fact that here's a company with 300,000 people, and the chairman and the president and the vice president all came because they can't get anything going anymore. They have 300,000 people that are not turned on to work, that are completely alienated from work. They want to create a sense of community, and they can't get it, and they don't know how. So they come to a mom, what they perceive as a mom and pop shop. They come to somebody that they perceive as an expert, you know, in a, in a, in a very minor field. They come to somebody they perceive, you know, is authentic or real, uh, so that that somehow, they hope, will be transmitted or rub off on their community and create a sense of community. So I agree with you about the sense of community, certainly. Everybody's desperately seeking it. What I see is this great massive anxiety and everybody getting more and more nervous and more and more, and more fearful about this, that, and the other thing with absolutely nobody to turn to. The institutions are breaking down and continue to break down, and Obama didn't work out either. So what are we going to do? Well, that's still cheese. But, 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 that there's but still Rob, cheese. The one thing I would say about well, I think. <laughs> So, you know, I mean, you know, read Shopcraft is Soulcraft or something like that. What we really need, I think, is somebody to do some honest work for a change. Perhaps work with their hands. Okay, we have Learn a skill. two quick comments and that's same what question. I'm just going to build on Rob's. I mean, I think you're so right because I think one of the things that we're talking about now is being present. And, you know, being present and looking at each other face to face, not through screens. I think you said build something with your hands. Like, like building dinner together, having dinner together, and leaving your blackberries behind. And you know, for, for an hour, we don't necessarily need to have our iPhone out there and making phone calls to each other. Um, I think there's also the last point you made is about people are forming these communities. If I look at, I'll take the borough of Brooklyn, and what's going on there, but it's happening all over, in terms of people are using their hands to build things that have real substance and value. And I think that's the kind of discussion that People are turning to each other to basically form community. They're building, they're turning to each other to provide goods of real value that enhance their lives. So I, I agree with your last point completely. Well, someone wants to express their own individuality by asking a question back there. So it would be um, courteous but not compulsory to identify yourself. Yeah, I'm, I'm Adam Miller from the New York Salon. Uh, I think it's interesting because. I was getting a bit frustrated because now I'm really sort of attempted to explain what it meant to express your individuality. But it does seem, and I agree with a lot of what Simon's saying, but it does seem to me that in an age where expression becomes everything, whether it's about opera or being in therapy or, you know, some of the really banal things that we see uh, across the internet, the real crisis that we, we face, and it's why there's an obsession, I agree uh, with Chris, about c uh, community, is that we've lost our moral web in society. And, and in many ways, we're anxious isolated, atomized individuals. But that's not something that can be resolved by expressing some strange abstract notion of individuality. That's about a collective conversation and maybe re-establishing some kind of universal sense. It's a very, very dirty word. Uh, you know, but this sense of which collectively as a society we can work out what's important to us. Experts do matter. We do need to be educated. Everyone should be educated more. I think it's scandalous to think we should, you, we should throw that as an ac accusation towards someone. And I think that's the, the crisis that we're all experiencing. Well, and what's why we're scandalous is when the educated people uh, um, assume that other people are not educated. It, it, it no, does no. seem to me, just also, summing, what, what, just summing up, the saying. New York but. Salon, we, we'll talk, it's something that brings together different people from different points of view to have contemporary discussions uh, in New York and elsewhere. But 
I think that the distinction between activity and ideas is what the problem is, and perhaps we need a new kind of infusion of ideas as opposed to just expression, uh, and that takes kind of arguing and debating those things out. Well, thank you. Any more comments? One over there. I'm Alan Dodds Frank, and I, uh, I think I'm one of Michael Wolf's 8,900 friends on Facebook, but maybe 4,900 before the 5,000 limit on friends? I'm not sure about that. Anyway, I want to take issue with something he said, although he makes a lot of sense most of the time. All power has passed to the consumer, I believe you said. Yeah, I think that is exactly wrong. I think the consumer has never been more undressed. I'm looking forward to the Financial Times piece on how much the information you put out is now worth to companies versus that great old uh, classic of what your body chemistry would sell for, you know, the value of the water, the, all that stuff in your bones. Remember that story? It used to come out every year. Um, I think that we've never had a greater level of social masturbation than the internet now makes possible. And that, as Simon was saying, there's a lot of self-indulgence here, but What's new about it is that now people are making tens of millions of dollars convincing others to waste time and spend money feeding imaginary farm animals. <laughs> and I'd like the panel to address the notion about where are the consumers now? Are they well, better or right. worse? Well, the consumer might like to masturbate. I mean, I think that that's one of the, 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 has, the has the freedom, the freedom to do that. But I think what you have to look and what, what the point I was trying to make is from the consumer's point of view, especially in an information world, uh, the consumer can, can say when he wants something, in what form he wants something, whether or not he wants to pay for something or just wants to abscond with something. Um, there's almost no activity, no part of the transaction that the consumer is not in the fundamentally in the driver's seat. Yeah, I mean the cloud. If I'm right, saying the cloud computing makes possible. I was trying to think of the company that's already very successful by bundling um, its information about taste. So actually, your individuality for commercial purposes is actually a bundle of recorded tastes which is then reinforced back to you by it anticipating the direction in which your bundle of tastes go. This is horrifying kind of Elsatz individuality, I think, that's out there and making money. Now we have, um, two, we have one comment, comment or question there and then one over there as well. Uh, this, is a, this is a comment to uh, Chris. Uh, I'm, I'm Richard Sennett. Uh, I'm writing a, a book on cooperation and part of what we've been studying is how people cooperate online. And we've just done a study of a failed program called Google Wave, which uh, attempted to help people cooperate in a significant way doing work on, online. And one of the things we found about why this program, which is a beautifully designed program, very thoughtfully designed, failed, was that people have very good uh, skills of display to other people and very poor interpretive skills. Uh, they have a hard time listening to other people. 
<laughs> they have a great deal of, of trouble in becoming more skilled, for instance, in, in discovering subtext, in expressing tact, which encourages other people to say more. Now, I, I am a real technophile. I mean, I've got involved, I've helped design this program, so it, you, you know, I believe in it. But what we left out of it is, I think, what you left out of your presentation, which is uh, you have to develop skills to have an interaction, and they are not skills of display. That's the simple part. The, the real challenge with uh, at least in the world of cooperation, about making use of this, this new technology, is how people become more skillful in attending to others. I, I actually think what you're saying there is, is totally profound and on the money. Um, I think w the, the dynamics of the web are dry, creating incentives and empowerment for people to build <coughs> the skills of display. People can see what the best is, they're, everyone wants to be a global star in some way, and so they're putting in hours of time to become you know, great at something. On, as far as that goes, that's good. But if it stops at that and the other side is missing, then, then there's, no, there's no learning cycle. It's, it's, one, it's, it's everyone bloviating at, at, each, at each other, some of them more skillfully than others. And certainly from, from our point of view, from Ted's point of view, we see our whole mission now to think much more about that, that feedback side. It's out there on the web, there are hidden away somewhere ideas that truly could make a more beautiful future for all of us. They're hidden, they're lost, and we need, we need those skills of, of finding them, of celebrating them, no and, then, and then bringing them to a wider public. No. So, so, and, and, and it's hard. Uh, someone asked the difference between community and network. Oh, by the way, I'm the cheesemonger's wife. My name is Nina Plank. And I own farmer's markets in London. I ran the green markets here in New York. And I grew up on a vegetable farm. So I'm a great fan of the suggestion that we should be able to do something with our hands and, and something that we can bring home at night, whether it's dinner or, or knitting or something. Anyway, I, I just wanted to propose the difference between community and network is that a network is like a very large phone directory. You may know lots of people in it. They may be very different from you, and they may be useful to you for social or other purposes in the future. But a community must surely involve some sort of, sort of uh, form of shared burden or sacrifice um, and, and, and also pass over some length of time, perhaps even enter, yeah, I'm tempted to say generational time. Um, uh, longer than 30 minutes or, or more like 30 years because um, in, my, in, in my own highly contentious field, which is nutrition, um, one of the things I've tried to persuade vegans of is that there are no long-standing vegan societies in human life. You just have to eat some kind of animal food in order to have babies over time. Um, and they're convinced that because they can be vegans today and because there are isolated communities of vegans, that that's sufficient. But I want them to see a sort of longer horizon. And I think that brings me back to what a community would involve. It is, it is much more lasting and durable and in some cases painful than a network. Well, there I can see a lot of hands. There's clearly a lot more that could be debated on this issue. Um, I thought perhaps I should give each of the speakers literally 30 seconds to summarize if their views have changed briefly, very briefly, 
or any last points I'd like to make, and then we'll wrap the evening up. Um, it's all to be played for. Uh, the web's uh, a mess. The web has incredible potential. We can decide to be grumpy old men, um, uh, kind of um, throwing up our hands in horror at the future and, and saying it's, okay. it's just awful. Or we, can, or we can try and find a way, a way of making something good and, and finding what is good and turning it okay. uh, towards okay. a Okay, all future. to be played for? Listen more, build on each other's thoughts. That's a real way to have some individual actions and communities come together. Okay, all to play for, listen more. More cheese, is that what you're, is that what you're looking for? <laughs> no, I wasn't going to. Uh, Be yourself. Yeah. The con or, I, everybody's, everybody's out there looking for sales. We try to do it by putting, having some good Stilton this week. The truth of the matter is that what I keep seeing over and over again, FT especially when I went to dinner in Brooklyn that time, with Ed Pilkington's house. Is Ed here? Yeah. Was the Emperor's New Clothes. It's the Emperor's New Clothes, so whether it was uh, tech stocks or whether it was this or that or whatever, you know, Facebook's worth $500 billion and Google and all the rest, and all it is is how can I get more advertising dollars and more sales. And so today I got my New Yorker renewal for $300, ordinary price marked down $275 so I could get it for $25. That's the kind of sales we're looking for. What Nina and I are saying is, you know, yeah, community. Okay. Community. Simon? Um, I, I, I'm really not against the web at all, actually. I just, I just really will fly the banner of being able to distinguish between quantity of data and quality of data. But I, I want to make a, a different point, which I hope Chris will um, actually reinforce something you said, that um, it, it would be wonderful. I mean, I'm all in favor of the web um, being a place actually where paradigm shifters um, can actually find an audience and they actually can have their originality promoted. And I, all I want to say is I think actually we are in danger in the Tea Party is a classic case in point of actually confusing the noise which screams individualism but is profoundly conformist, profoundly conformist. Whether you look at, you know, the paradigm shifters are, we have them all around us, Ira Glass, Robert Lepage, all sorts of people in art. But we are actually a profoundly, timidly conformist society in this country. One might think which would horrify the likes, actually, of Thoreau and Benjamin Franklin. And if we can actually break the nervousness about actually wanting to be part of a conforming chat... Um, and have the web actually validate the genuinely original and creative, then may it flourish and prosper. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Michael. Uh, I'm a control freak. I really like control. I really believe in, um, uh, in control and in being in charge and in who's dominant. Um, and yet, I, I will tell you, I find myself incredibly... Um, thrilled that I'm at this moment in time, live in this moment in time, which is all about um, uh, people in control losing it. <laughs> well, on that rousing note, I will take control and say thank you very much to all of you for a very lively debate, and thanks to the audience for, for your you. participation. Oh, thank you. Me. I love you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.